I am Upper Darby Police Superintendent Michael Chitwood, and you're listening to the Travel Mug Podcast with Matt O'Donnell. So here we are, and this is the part where you're going to roll your eyes and say, let's get on with this, but I have to say this, Superintendent. First of all, you are the Philadelphia Police Department's most decorated cop with more than 70 commendations for valor, bravery, heroism. You're the subject of a book called Tough Cop, which which features you on the cover holding an assault rifle. You have run police departments in Portland, Maine, Middletown Township, Delaware County? Bucks County. Bucks County, because there's there's tons of Middletown Township, Bucks County, and now in Upper Darby Township, one of the largest municipalities in the region. And so let's get this out of the way to begin. Does the dirty, hairy thing get old for you, and do you roll your eyes with that? Uh, Not really. Not really. I mean, as long as you're not calling me names or cursing me out, I'm good. So they can call me whatever. Let's go back to that movie uh, briefly here. It was released in 1971, Clint Eastwood, obviously. And some saw it as a response to, during the 60s, there being this focus on, well, let's make sure the defendants have all their rights secured, and let's not so much focus on the victim, and let's make the police follow the book by the, the rule. And at least in the movie, Dirty Harry does things that, are not by the book and people in the movie theaters are like yeah yeah we should have policing like that looking back to that movie do, do you kind of understand the snapshot that we were in at that point and where do you think we are right now in terms of policing well you have to remember that when you look at policing in america today i start my 54th year friday april 6th 1964 I started and I was 20 years old and I came out on the street and I wanted the job as a policeman because I felt I could help people I mean that's what I wanted to do is help people and when I look at the Dirty Harry movies of 1971 so I'm on the job seven years and I got it I got what Dirty Harry was trying to project I understand what he was doing. We were still had rules and regulations. You still had the Constitution. You still had to abide by uh, the code of discipline, if you will, in, in the Philadelphia Police Department. I was probably six months into the job, and the next thing I know, he was in the riots on Columbia Avenue in Philadelphia. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that refrigerators were coming off the rooftops, being thrown at the police officers, cinder blocks, and it became mass chaos. It was clubs were Trump in 1964. Uh, You took your badge off, you took your ID off, and you worked three-man cars, and you went around and you had to quell the rioters. And I couldn't believe that people would destroy their neighborhoods, their homes, for what turns out to be it was totally false. You know, today they would call false news, <laughs> fake news. But back then it was two officers stopped a car on Columbia Avenue, and next thing you know they beat up a pregnant woman, and it never happened. never happened. So but, the connection you see of the movie is, is this lack of policing back then. Do you, do you see that now? 
Uh, lack, not lack of policing, lack of respect for police. Oh, a absolutely. There's, there's a tremendous amount of res disrespect for officers on the street. Now, again, I have been very, very fortunate in my career that I've been in a lot of situations. I've met a lot of good people. I've met a lot of bad people. By far, the good people outnumber the bad people, but the bad people cause 90% of the problems. I think today, when you look at the difference in policing now, there's, there's a more educated police force. Most of the men and women that go into policing today have college degrees, in some cases, advanced degrees. Uh, there's more of a interaction uh, from the top administration to, to better train the officers. I mean, certainly we offer a lot more training on, you know, how to stop a vehicle, emotional intelligence, racial yeah. intelligence. Let's, let's talk about that. Now, Dirty Harry would never have gone through emotional intelligence in policing. It's to prevent overreaction, basically, deal with stress, stressful situations like, say, an active shooter. And you're a big proponent of this. And so when people say, oh, well, Superintendent Chitwood's getting soft on us on policing. What would your response be with this emotional intelligence? My response would be as follows. I think it's important for the officers to treat people the way they want themselves and their families treated. I don't care what they did or what they're, what they're accused of. You have to treat people with dignity and respect. And I tell that to every officer. I've been a police chief for 34 years, and every officer I hire, I tell them the same thing. If you do that, 98% of the time you're going to win because I truly believe that how we in policing today and years ago always got in trouble is we created the monster. We created the negative interaction. And once you create that negative interaction, there's going to be, there's going to be some type of repercussion. Uh, and I, I see that. So I would say this to those naysayers, that officers need to know what their trigger is, what's good, what's bad. They also need to know what's good and bad with the people that they're dealing with. I mean, one of the greatest salutations that I can get if I'm on the, on the L and the guy stops me and says, I've been in every prison across the board. I've been in federal prison. I've been in state prison. I've been in county prison. He said, and I always had one thing about you, and that was you always you treated me with respect. Every time you locked me up, you treated me with respect. Now, that's, that's saying something. This was last year. So it works. It truly, truly, truly works. And, and, and that's what I promote, and that's what I'm a proponent of today because times have changed. It's a different world, and you better be able to interact with the community that you're policing. Some have really struggled with this whole idea of Black Lives Matter, and Really, the, the movement is about making sure black men are not being killed by police. And then you have the white lives matter movement, or, or they say blue lives matter with, with police. And the sense that, well, maybe black men shouldn't be shooting other black men in urban areas. So you have this give and take, right? Do you see any way to encompass all these movements to say, listen, let's just make sure people don't die. Let's, let's protect people as humans. When, when you look at, at the issues of uh, Black Lives Matters, Blue Lives Matters, the, 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 the major component that you see is people are dying. My th thing or my focus is always on 
let the facts play themselves out because more often than not, hysteria, emotion uh, become the, the issue of the day and not the facts of a particular investigation, whether a police officer gets shot or whether the police shoot, shoot uh, a citizen. And I think the rhetoric needs to slow down a little bit, get the facts. If the police shoot and kill or shoot somebody and they're wrong, then they should pay the price. There's enough agencies out there between the federal and state and local agencies to investigate the incident. Same way if a police officer gets shot. Get all the facts. What happened? What was the causation factor? What led to whatever? And, I, and, and that, we don't, we don't do that in this country today. It's hysteria. Violence is perpetrated by whatever group immediately without the facts of what, what happened. Some members of the movement would say, listen, the process just doesn't work. We can't wait for the facts <clears throat> to come out. It's the process that we, we embrace. It's the process. It's the Constitution. And it's the process, based on my experience, that does work. Just let it give it a chance to work. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with Superintendent Chitwood. We're going to talk about opioids and also Ira Einhorn. We'll be right back. Music for the Travel Mug podcast graciously provided by A Pregnant Light. You can find their music on most streaming services like Bandcamp and Spotify. Back with Superintendent Chitwood of the Upper Darby Police Department. We're going to talk about the opioid epidemic, which really Upper Darby could be one of several ground zeros around here. And I, I just want to bring up one quick story that we did on Action News back on March 14th, I'm sure you remember, where a health care worker who was supposed to care for a 73-year-old patient overdosed and needed care in that person's house. Is that one of the biggest horror stories you've seen so far in your township with opioids? Not really. I mean, the, the opioid crisis <clears throat> not only impacts Upper Darby, but it impacts the entire country. I mean, you look at that tragedy, the, the, the 73-year-old basically saved the uh, worker's life, the caretaker's life uh, by, by calling the police and uh, getting the police over there and the police in Arcander, and she she uh, was able to survive. Uh, you know, we had the guy in the bus, mm -hmm. just kind of broad daylight, shoots up on the bus and passes out uh, unconscious. We have the 69th Street Terminal. I can't tell you how many people have uh, OD died. 69th Street, the last stop. They go to Philadelphia, they take the L back, and they're dead. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of stories. I think in... In two and a half years, we've used Narcan 385 times in Upper Darby. And of that 385 times, 345 saves, 18 dead. How many were redos, basically, using it on someone a second, a third time? We, we have used up to five times, and I would say that 385 times, at least a couple dozen are repeats. So there's a study that came out about a month ago create a huge uproar, but seem to suggest with the research that having the Narcan available with police officers or whoever encourages this type of behavior and actually leads to criminal behavior, or more criminal behavior. What do you think about that? You save lives. You save lives. And hopefully the life you save can 
eventually be sober. I don't know if that's true or not because I don't see it. We don't see it because we deal with the street, the immediate impact, and then we go to the next person with addiction. You're just trying to keep up. Basically, it's not changing. Believe me, it's not changing for the better. It's not changing for the better. As the head of the police department, what would be the one thing that would make a difference for you if someone else could give it to you? Or is that? I think think the first thing that has to be done is the bureaucracy of treatment has to be opened up a little bit. I mean, it's horrible. I mean, we work very closely with one of the major drug treatment communities in, in, in the country, and certainly this side of the country. And anytime somebody comes in for help, they voluntarily come in. We have a program called Change is Possible. We call them, and they then try and get somebody into rehab or detox or whatever. I can't do it because of the bureaucracy. It's the healthcare days. industry needs to change. No, the healthcare industry has to change, and they have to open the doors. All these talking heads, all these politicos talk about they're going, going to do this and they're going to do that. You know what? Nobody's done nothing. Nobody's done nothing, in my opinion. At one point in your career, you didn't carry a gun. And you were on the street, right? I was. I was. I when was, was this? Detective. What happened was back in the 70s, we did a drug raid. I was in the, in the uh, narcotic squad. And we did a drug raid up in uh, North Philadelphia. And during the course of the raid, it was broad daylight. We were a couple blocks away from T- Temple University, and um, there was a shootout. My partner got shot in the chest. Uh, he subsequently retired and then eventually uh, passed on. And during the course of the gun battle, I was able to get the door open, and me and the perpetrator got in a shootout. And uh, I have said this in the past, so I'm not, not afraid, ashamed to say it now, that I had every intention of killing this guy. I had a six-shot revolver, and I had fired three rounds. He had fired several at me. Again, my my uh, partner was shot, and I can hear him in the background screaming, help, help, I'm dying, I'm dying. And uh, I told him to throw the gun out, everything would be okay. Just throw the gun out, throw the gun out, throw the gun out. We threw the gun out. But then he came out with a baby as a shield, and I got my gun cocked. Thank God I didn't shoot, because I probably would have killed that baby, and the baby was no more than six months old. So there was a struggle to get the baby away from him, and uh, we finally did, and, and it scared me to the death. I mean, how do you live? Uh, and I was 27, 28 years old. How do you live with killing a baby? And I just said, you know, and I'm not carrying a gun. So I never told anybody about I never told anybody. You know, I left the narcotic squad. I got promoted to homicide. I went in a homicide division, and I would arrest people at pull cue. We had one guy wanted for like four or five murders. I go down, I had a pool cue. He thought I had a shotgun. You know, come out, I'll blow you right up. I got a pool cue. So one day, uh, a reporter from the Daily News was doing a story on on uh, an individual that just had died. And during the course of the conversation, he interviewed me. And I made the mistake of telling him that I don't carry a gun. Well, it was in the paper or in the headlines the next day. And then I got called into the commissioner's office. And I was told you will carry a gun, and you will, uh, you whether you use it or not is on you. But you will carry a gun, you know. So as superintendent, you carry a gun now, right? I do, I do. If I go out on a drug raid or I do anything, uh, I do. All right. So a Philadelphia woman named Holly Maddox disappeared in 1977, 
if you don't know the story, if you're new to this, I suggest you go to the internet and look this up. It's, it's quite a story. Her boyfriend, counterculture leader Ira Einhorn, who used to claim he, he invented Earth Day, was long suspected of disappearance. This was in the University City section of Philadelphia. Armed with a search warrant, you came face to face with Einhorn, and you ended up finding Maddox, her dead body, stuffed in a trunk. You've been through the story over and over again, so let me ask you this question. When you looked at Ira Einhorn, did you see in his eyes a murderer, and how did you know that? <clears throat> well, it was an interesting the dynamic that occurred as we're searching, and I was the one searching. Einhorn was standing by the door jam, eight feet away, and, I, and he just stood there. And I kept on going through, and finally we opened the trunk, the steamer trunk, and I noticed it was covered with, the, back then it was the evening bulletin. And I saw the date, and the date was exactly about the date she disappeared. So I looked at him, and he kind of put his head down. And, then, and I didn't say anything right away. And then I started going through, and then there was foam and then plastic. And then, there, lo and behold, there was a mummified hand. So I said, I turned to him, and I said, it looks like we found Holly. And he said, you found what you found. And he, walked, he started to walk away. There were other police here, so he didn't go far. But... When you looked at the probable cause for the search warrant, there was no doubt in my mind he killed her. And there was no doubt in my mind that he put her body in that closet. But I was kind of surprised to find the body in there. Um, and then that was part of my life for the next 25 years. Trying to bring him back as, as the story uh, he goes. He off, he got out bail, you know, what a wonderful man he is. And, you know, we shouldn't leave him in jail and all this. In fact, it's kind of funny, Arlen Specter who was uh, just had law, left the DA's office uh, after two terms, and then... Uh, the defense attorney. This, he was the defense attorney. Lynn Abraham attorney. was the judge. I mean, uh, no, Lynn Abraham, I think it was Armand Delaporta was okay. the judge. Eventually, Lynn Abraham was the DA. Okay. And then, subsequently, she became a judge. But... Uh, um, well, I, I bring the story up because in all your time as a police officer in many facets, can you look at someone and sense... This guy is a psychopath. I think you can look at most individuals and tell, but I think you need a little bit of a background. I mean, just arbitrarily saying, walking down the street and say he's a murderer. I mean, I no. But uh, when you look at the person and you find out more about that person's background, then you add it all up, and more often than not, you're going to come away with a conclusion. You know, and most times it's a, it's a positive conclusion. Where there's smoke, there's fire? Do you uh, believe absolutely. in that? I, I do. Yeah. I do. I do. The Ferguson effect. Uh, James Comey brought it up during when he was FBI director, suggesting that all this talk of police being too aggressive, police brutality, has caused certain officers in certain departments, maybe in Chicago and Baltimore, to back off and to allow crime to rise as a result. Maybe not directly that something they want to happen. Do you believe in the Ferguson effect? I do. I do. I think because you have to look at police, they're hired from the human race. So they have the same desires, the same wants, the same needs as any one of us. And if you're attacked for attempting to do your job, it, it causes you to pucker up a little bit and, and take a step back and realize, is this, this what I want to do? And unfortunately, uh, with all the rhetoric uh, that is being 
implemented against police by various groups, right, wrong, or indifferent, uh, it, it, it does have an it does have an effect because we're human beings. Travel Mug's going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about school shootings with Superintendent Chitwood. We'll be right back. Superintendent Michael Chitwood, Upper Darby Police, how do we stop schools from getting shot up? The interesting dynamic about that is that as, as I was, I think about this, as I was growing up, they had air raid drills. So you would hide under the desk because the Russians were going to throw bombs on the country. And then you had the Columbine, and then it followed up with various other shootings across the country. So what the practice now is that it's in, you have to remember one thing, the shooter, the mass murderer, takes about three minutes to cause his issue to kill people. And the, the most recent incident, the incident that occurred in, in Florida, you look at that, three, four minutes, he's done. He's done. Now, again, there was the police that didn't respond where they should have responded. And over the years, our training now is that you respond immediately to the, you take out the threat. And then once you take out the threat, then you start rescuing people or treating people. So my philosophy is you need to start, unfortunately, you need to start securing the schools in a more uh, modern way. Now, I had suggested arming teachers and obviously was Do you think that was a bad idea to suggest uh, uh, No, I don't think it was a bad idea to, to suggest it, but at the end of the day, the school board said no. So that's, that's fine. I, I accept that. I mean, I don't have a problem with that. But the baddies got guns. So somebody has to get, have guns, whether it's an armed guard or whether it's police. I'll give you an example. In Upper Darby, they have their own security system, but they're unarmed. And if they have, hypothetically, if they have 40 people, probably 25 are retired police officers. Why not give them guns? So that at least they're armed and they, and let the world know they're armed. They're not walking through the schools to lock anybody up. They're not looking to be the enemy. But God forbid somebody goes in there and tries to do something. The good guys got guns too. How about the gun so control? So I think, I think, well, I, I, as far as I'm I, concerned. I want to ask you. How about the gun control advocates who say, you know, there are already too many guns out there. Let's find ways to reduce the amount of weapons out there or to make it more difficult for people to get weapons so you don't have people who are not on the radar screen of being mental, having mental issues make it harder for them to get the guns so they don't get to the point where they go and use it. There's 300 million guns on the street. 300 million. So if you think that taking guns away from people or advocating, advocating taking guns off the street is going to happen. It's not going to happen. I don't mind common sense gun legislation. I'm not a gun advocate. You know, the Second Amendment says a, I've seen people who defend themselves and their family with guns, and I applaud them for being able to do that. I think what has to happen, you have to have common sense legislation. You have to have a universal background check. You can't buy a gun. I don't care if it's a rifle or a long gun unless you're 21 years old. Uh, the mental health, it needs a database. I, I agree with all that. But, again, at the same time, 
you're not – if somebody wants to get a gun, they're going to get a gun regardless. It, it's, it's just going to happen. Metal detectors at schools? I think I don't have a problem with metal detectors. They have them in Philadelphia. Philadelphia. They say in urban areas where they have them, tend not to have school shootings. Now, I don't know if that can be a direct <clears throat> result of it, but it is. It's, it's, a, it's a proactive way to deal with, with the issue, and I think you've got to be proactive. I mean, what do you wait for a shooting and then say, oh, geez, we should? Let's, let's get on board. Metal detectors, security, don't have to be teachers, security armed, trained personally picked, go through a psychological evaluation so you make sure they're not nuts, and then go from there. But, I mean, I think you have to protect our children, and the best way to protect our children from these guns. They're doing it in churches now. I can't tell you how many churches are calling me and say, we want to we want to set up a program. What, what, how do we do it? What can we do? You know? You worked for Commissioner Frank Rizzo when I he did. was a police commissioner, right. and you worked with the police department when he was mayor. Right. The whole idea of removing his statue, the questions about his legacy, how it has the perception, the public perception of him has changed. Your thoughts on that? I, I disagree with it. I think that he did what he did, and the statue was put in his memory. And the bottom line is whether you agree or disagree with what he was or what he proposed or what he believed in, I had an opportunity to work with the guy, and I'm I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for him. So uh, I, uh, I'm a little disappointed that uh, everybody's jumping on the bandwagon to uh, not only take his statue down but remove his mural on Ninth Street. So I, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. But you know, it's a different world. Favorite movie about cops? Movie. Uh, Dirty Harry. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you. Which one? The first one? I think the first one, Make My Day. That was you know, there's a parallel because uh, that was based on the, roughly based on the Zodiac Killer, uh -huh. and they called Einhorn the Unicorn Killer because right. Einhorn right. means germ, in German means unicorn. So you have that, right? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. All right, favorite TV show about cops? It used to be a show on... Uh, uh, in fact, the guy just died, Stephen Boko, had yeah. it, uh, and it was called Cops. Because yeah. I did a segment on that. I was flown up to Toronto, and I did a, I did a segment on Einhorn. Uh, so that was that was my favorite TV show. Not the Cops, where they it was a reality show, it, where they go with the, the camera and they go into the cars and that one. No, no, no. This it was, was a different Cops. One. This was years and years ago. So and, they, uh, they had Cops before Cops was yeah, Cops. Yeah, and this was really true stories. And they would have actors play different people, and then you would get a role in it as, as uh, the assigned or just the officer that got shot or the officer that did the shooting or whatever, whatever it was. So it was a real-life drama. Let's end on a good note here, right? So you, you, you have tons of stories. That's the reason why I'm here talking to you. Is there a story that really kind of touched your heart that, that wasn't necessarily – because I know the one you told about the baby. I mean, goodness, talk about touching your heart. But something really positive that, that happened while you were on the streets. You Helping know, someone or there, – there, There's so many of them. I mean, I, I guess the best way to answer that is uh, I try and be all things to all people. So I'm on the street all the time. And I do a lot of reading to the kids. And I go into schools, and I usually do, like, first, second grade. And uh, I was reading to a local school, and when I got done reading the book. What was the book? Do you remember? It was at the... Uh, Nothing you picked, then. It was no, I always yeah. get the school to pick. And what I do is I make the kids read. I don't sit there and read and say... I make them come up, and the deal is they clap for the kid no matter how good they are. 
Everybody's clapped, and it's all voluntary. So they volunteer, and they come up. So I'm getting ready to leave, and this little second grader grabs me and is hogging on, holding on to my leg and says to me, I want to go home with you. Now, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty macho guy. I mean, you know, uh, you know, and I looked, and I was, like, taken aback. He, I, all I did was read. I told a couple of dumb jokes. I had my own little joke book that I take to the schools with me, the world's dumbest jokes. And to have this little kid look up with the big brown eyes and want to go home with you. First, I said, wow. And then second, I thought, my God, how sad. For 20 minutes, a stranger, a total stranger, and this kid immediately thought I was, you know, the person that she wanted to go home with. I was, I was, I was, I was taken aback, blown away. What better way to end things? Superintendent Chitwood, thanks for joining us on the Travel Mug Podcast. Thank you. You're going back on the street now, right? I'm back on the street. <laughs> Our thanks to Superintendent Michael Chitwood. And so the conversation continues on many of these issues that we discussed on the Travel Mug. And we'll be seeking out other voices and other opinions on these in future episodes. So do stay tuned. Thanks for listening. Thanks for streaming. Thanks for subscribing. I'm Matt O'Donnell. Travel Mug, over and out. <laughs>